to episode 84 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 2nd of March 2020. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Good evening. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. So before we get started, uh, I want to mention Talk Live again. Sorry if you have no intention of coming and you're bored of this by now. I remember back in the day when Linux Outlaws would always go on about OddCamp and I didn't want to go. And uh, I'd think to myself, shut up. I don't want to hear about it, but you're going to hear about it anyway. You've probably skipped this by now anyway. So we now have tickets at fosstalk.com. There's a link there to Eventbrite, and I think you can even have it uh, embedded in the page. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, but otherwise, fosstalk.com. And also, um, the call for papers. So if you want to give a talk or do a workshop during the day, then get in touch with me. There's details at fosstalk.com of how to do that. There's a few slots available. I'm kind of trying to make it all work out. So I think that is all hopefully going to be fine. But yeah, if you want to talk or whatever, then let me know as soon as you can. And um, otherwise, yeah, that's definitely happening. I say definitely happening unless this coronavirus situation gets terrible. I see quite a few conferences being shut down and everything. Hopefully by the summer, it'll all have blown over. But uh, we'll have to see on that. Just to reiterate quickly a point that I made uh, last year or maybe the year before, um, if you're on the fence and you don't know if you you will enjoy the evening or the, the rest of the day or uh, you know, you, you're, you're worried that you won't know anybody there, I would encourage you to come anyway um, and there'll be plenty of people to talk to and you will have a good time. So, yeah, if, you, if you're thinking about it, then then do come. I should have mentioned this is in London at the Harrison on the 20th of June. And yeah, most of the people who've got a ticket so far have got one ticket. So that means they're coming alone. So yeah, if you're coming alone, don't worry. There's plenty of other people to talk to who are in your situation. So come to that. It'll be great. And uh, get a ticket. The ticket's are free or you can have a donation ticket you can pay what you want there's no obligation and there's no priority or anything but some people in previous years had said they wanted to donate so that is an option for so let's do a little bit of news then Uh, and the first one is that the gtk website has been revamped and you're scared you're quaking in your boots failing i am i am it's like talk about kicking in the spuds while you know the whole qt relicensing shenanigans is going on in all honesty, though, I actually had a look at the website, and yeah, I think it actually is quite nice, and it's quite a smart thing to do. And uh, it'd be nice if all of the various toolkits and desktop environments got in on the same type of act and just made it nice and shiny way to develop new stuff. Because often it's very awkward coming to a new system to try and you know how do you do that bit, what ties into that, what libraries are there. Um, and very simple, sort of clean examples. So there's a great way to do that. It is. I totally agree. The design is lovely as well, which you don't often see with, you know, kind of open source projects. And it really takes you straight to the, you know, within two paragraphs, there are example code for using, you know, building GTK apps in JavaScript and Python. And it really gets into it very quickly and makes it look very attractive. I've always actually really admired Cube for the, for its documentation, for its API documentation, but it does increasingly hide all this information between a lot of obfuscation that passes you, you know, between its licensing models and making sure you really want to look at the open source docs and all that, which, you know, is going to be another load of friction. So the Raspberry Pi 4 is getting server ready, according to the link that I think you put in, Fodim. Yeah, I'm going to leave it. I'm sure Will and Graham know more about this than me, but essentially... 
to standardize and open up uh, the UEFI boot manager on it means you don't have to have a custom kernel anymore when this project will complete its gradual process. And that is to make these devices far more open and far more liable to be used in lots of projects, probably embedded controller stuff and things like that. Um, but I think this is a really good project and uh, I like to see things like this because it, it, I always was a bit dubious about things like the graphics driver and things like that on the, on the Pi being closed. And the more things that got opened up, I think really starting to, to look like a really good project for longevity where you don't have to worry that, you know, if the Raspberry Pi Foundation, for whatever reason, goes away, that you're stuck on a particular kernel version or whatever, that, you know, th- these things are sort of, once it's in the mainline kernel, you, you know, you're protected, essentially. Yeah, I don't know that much about it, but I know that um, building kind of secure devices for around the Raspberry Pi, which is a brilliant thing for testing this kind of stuff, is really difficult because of the lack of kind of EFI firmware. Um, it's really difficult to create... Um, like an encrypted or secure chain of a boot chain, um, which EFI really helps with. I have heard that this project's in very, a very early stage. And so it, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take before it matures enough to be able to be reliable. But the fact that it started, I just hope that it carries on. But that wasn't the only Raspberry Pi news in the last couple of weeks. Most people will know about this, but now the two gigabyte model is only $35 as is also the one gigabyte model. If you're an industrial customer or whatever, then you can still get that. Unfortunately, the four gigabyte one is still $55. So there's no price reduction there, but it means that your base standard $35 model is two gigabytes now of RAM, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, I read something that said Eben was surprised that the two gig, or rather, I think he was surprised that the one gig version wasn't more popular than it was um and the the amount of people buying the two gig version and the four gig version has uh, really surprised him so i guess that this is a direct result of people showing what they want with their wallets and um raspberry pi have listened to that and obviously managed to find some efficiencies in their supply chain and pared down things to what they absolutely need and managed to find a ten dollar discount which is very good can I be a little bit cynical? I seem to recall Eben predicting that the two gigabyte model would be the most popular when in fact it was the four gigabyte model that was popular. And so could it be that they have got an excess of stock of the two gigabyte one and they want to get rid of them? Could be. Yeah, that's quite a good supposition. <laughs> but they have said that this is a permanent price cut. So it is because of the, the price of RAM going down. So... I think maybe that's not true, and maybe the two gigabyte ones were pretty popular. I think in education, where the difference between $35 and $55, that is a lot when you're buying a shitload of them. So I think that the two gig ones will probably be quite popular in education. Could it be that they also wanted to sort of reduce the amount of SKUs they've got? I mean, I know that sounds like they're probably still going to have the one gig if... Uh, industrial customers want them but maybe it's trying to limit down that number so they're not trying to i I mean i don't know whether there's any extra effort involved in that i have no idea but well you've got to have extra inventory and stuff and you've got to have different runs of production so i would imagine that it is a bit of a ball ache for them and does cost them more money or whatever but the question is uh, why would any industrial customer want to use the one gigabyte one rather than two gigabyte one 
On Linux Session News yesterday, we were kind of speculating that it could be because industrial customers certify their parts or whatever, and even though it's basically the same thing, because it's a slightly different spec, they'd have to recertify it, which costs them money, and so they just prefer to stick with the one gigabyte one. Sounds plausible. Yeah, but also also they'll know exactly what they need, and they won't foresee any reason to to use more than one gig if that's all they need, and so it'll just be a waste of money spending money on more. Yeah, but it's not spending extra money, is it? Because it's the same price. Yeah. So yeah, it's a bit of a strange one. That I, I think it must be the certification. That's the only plausible explanation. But if anyone out there knows, then do let us know. LateNightLinux.com slash contact. Forward slash Pi4 conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as a forward slash. There's a backslash and a slash. Forward slash, backslash. There are two. No, wrong. Actually wrong. Literally wrong. <laughs> So before we started recording, and basically every time we get together before we start recording, we end up talking bollocks for ages. And um, you started talking about something failing that I thought, right, now save it for on air. So tell us about this. Right. So we all know I like Flight Gear, which is a open source flight simulator. I have been secretly watching YouTube videos of DCS with our DCS world, which is digital combat flight simulator. I felt very dirty cheating on my beloved open source flight simulator <laughs> by watching videos of the Grim Reapers YouTube channel. Um, but in that video, the cap, the guy who seems to be, I don't know what the fuck the boss of the team or whatever has been using a, uh, calc, um, you know, LibreOffice calc. Well, haha. And this is the, the problem. He's been using OpenOffice on, he uses obviously Windows because it's a gaming channel and all that. I don't want to be that fucking guy going, excuse me, have you heard about LibreOffice? And, you know, I'm maybe he has heard about LibreOffice and he still wants to use OpenOffice, but I just thought it was weird. Why would anybody go out of their way to use OpenOffice and not, does he not know about LibreOffice? Does he care? Does he not care? And I just wondered, would you email in? Simple. Just stick a comment on the YouTube video going, by the way, did you know that? Or do you look like a dick? I think you look like a dick if you do it. Yeah, probably. That's what I haven't. <laughs> yeah, I think you've just got to let people get on with it. I mean, I've had this before and I have said it, not to randoms on YouTube, but to friends who've mentioned it. Um, it just goes to show that that open office branding is so powerful People still now consider, oh, you don't have to pay for Office. You can just use OpenOffice. It's free. Even though it's it hasn't quite been abandoned, has it? But it is, it's not developed at the same pace as LibreOffice. Not even nearly the same pace. Um, I think it is uh, an anachronism of certain... Uh, age of people who grew up with uh, OpenOffice being the alternative and... You know that's just the mantra now. It is the free the free MS Office is called Open Office, and that's what people Google, and um, and that's what pops up. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I'd be inclined to use somebody else's account and comment on there. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, <laughs> and maybe use some of that uh, free Google AdWords credit that I get emails about every so often, and take out an <laughs> advert on Google for search term Open Office, and then point them to LibreOffice. Yeah. I don't know. It's just weird. It's just like, what if, what if you could really make somebody's day by them going, oh, fucking hate all these things, this shitty open product. And he's like, well, that's because it's fucking 10 years old at this point. I think it's definitely worth doing. 
I mean, like Will says, my direct experience is always with non-technical people that they've just about grokked open as a replacement mm. for some evil proprietary. And so open office is just the, the kind of meme that they have in their head for that kind of stuff. And then when I have to, to explain, well, actually, it, then it just immediately becomes complicated. You know, and I think we'll maybe touch on this later on, but it's for the same reasons why maybe the Linux desktop is complicated. Yeah. I wonder if LibreOffice could do with a rebrand, something a little bit less um, factual, if you like. I wonder if the Apache project could just stop fucking promoting OpenOffice and actually just put a redirector on the fucking page to LibreOffice. Yeah. <laughs> really annoys me. It does potentially damage the the brand of open source, as it were. If that's what people think of as open source, this ancient office suite that never gets any love when they should be using LibreOffice, it, it comes back to the whole thing about whether you should fork. And we had that with GIMP, didn't we? Where that was forked to the Glimpse project. But who outside of people who would listen to podcasts like this would even have heard of Glimpse and they will just continue to use GIMP? So is there a solution? It sounds like there isn't really. I'll just take one for the team and email them so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sounds like you should do that. Feel the shame. <sighs> okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets as they call them with full root access in data centers all over the world with really fast networking and super fast SSDs. And they offer Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CentOS and FreeBSD and some container distros. But if you don't want to use one of those, you can upload your own custom image. They have loads of one-click apps like LAMP and LEMP stacks, WordPress, Discourse, GitLab, and it's really easy to set up. These droplets start from as little as $5 a month, and they scale all the way up to multiple cores and huge amounts of RAM and disk space. And they also have CPU-optimized droplets if you want just raw power and memory-optimized droplets if you need more of that. They have really simple backups that have saved my bacon once or twice and cloud firewalls that can stop network traffic before it even gets to your VM. It's really simple to add extra storage to your droplet, whether that is block storage or object storage, depending on your needs. So go to do.co slash LNL and get your $50 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. On to a bit of admin then. And thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. You can go to latenightlinux.com slash support to find out more about that. And remember, $5 or more on Patreon gets you an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Last time we talked about the elementary crowdfunder, which uh, we can link to again because they uh, are now going for a stretch goal of 200% for a second sprint, which is, I think, like a privacy and security one. So um, that we'll link to. But that got us talking after we finished recording and it made you think about something will well i think i know the answer to this and i suspect that you'll all largely agree but it'd be interesting if you don't is there any point in continuing to pursue an open source desktop for the masses my point here is that we've been trying to pitch alternatives to windows for a long long time Ubuntu have done a lot of good work there. They've invested in marketing and um, you know, they've done the best out of all of the various distros to 
get the word out to the man in the street, if you like, and they've done deals with Dell and Lenovo. You know, you can you could for a while. I think you probably still can go to a shop and buy a machine with Ubuntu on it, but it hasn't worked. And when you compare that to things like Blender, which are now the industry standard tool for doing 3D graphics, most people are running that on Windows. And I'm sure that there was a story recently that we covered um, about the, I think the Critter developers came back from their conference and said, well, look, everybody's running it on Windows, so we don't really care about Linux anymore. And I apologize if it wasn't those guys, but somebody said something like that. So should we just accept that Linux on the desktop is never going to be for the normals and it's 1.5% market share or whatever it is, is fine. And put our efforts into pushing free open source applications instead of free open source desktops? I think yes and no. (laughs) So yes, we definitely should focus on open source applications because that is the gateway drug towards a, a totally open source operating system. But I think that your experience with the Mac, Will, proves that open source can be better and and I may maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the the Mac experience that you had was just different from what you're used to, and that's why you hated it. But then you moved from Unity to GNOME fairly easily, mm. and you could probably use XFCE even and be happier than with the Mac. Yeah, but I to paraphrase one of the greatest thinkers of the 23rd century, Jean Luc Picard, <laughs> it is. <laughs> It is possible to be better and still lose. So, you know, it is better, but the normals don't care about that. The normals just want to use Windows. And there's no amount of persuading that we can do that is going to change their mind. I don't think the normals want to use Windows. I think that they don't want to change, but they're not particularly happy with Windows. I mean, some people love it, and fair enough, good on them. But... I think most people reluctantly use Windows at work or whatever. Mm. And I think that if you had the chance to show them what's better about Linux, then they might be inclined to switch to it. And it's just that old problem of getting it in front of them in the first place. Yeah, I I, I think that that is definitely true. But I also think that most people do not care about their computer you know it's a it's a black box that just it's just a tool they just use it to uh, as a means to an end they don't actually care that it's difficult to use you know it's like uh, well i get in my car and then i've got to know what gear to put it in and then i have to push this stick to indicate this way and that way it's all very complicated why can't i just get in it and tell it where to go um i think that's the same with computers they just they just use it they understand the foibles and They've already invested time and energy into this annoying thing. They don't want to have to go through all that again. Better the devil you know. Well, yeah. That's an important point that I think we often forget, that most people find technology and computers quite terrifying, even though, you know, maybe we take it for granted. Um, it's a, It requires an awful lot of effort. Um, to learn how to use the things that they want to do on a computer. And the thought of relearning it, especially something as terrifying in a different environment like Linux, is just 
really difficult to kind of comprehend and there isn't even the, the help or the support there you won't find linux being used in schools all that much um and the familiarity of windows and mac os just makes it so much easier to use it's it's like a, it's like it's like when you first move to a new city or town um you know it's quite intimidating and you learn you learn the environment and then you kind of want to stick with it um and i think you know we we take it for granted that other people find it very difficult when perhaps we find it easier from a purely selfish point of view, I get worried that we spend so much time customizing everything for these people who are going to flock to us uh, mm. the nearest second when we just finish this one feature and change it for everybody else who's actually using it right now. Like, I've been exclusively using Linux machine since, I don't know what, 2001. And I'm not trying to say that things shouldn't change, but... I think we should not ruin it for the people who are actually there right now and then screw it up so badly that no new people come and all the old people go and nobody uses the damn thing for bar maybe the five developers that have worked on it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we should, we should now make it for us. And then mm. there's, there's a hope, a real hope that like there'd be a generational shift, a new group of people will come along and Linux might be their default in the same way that no smoking in pubs is a new default or, or lots of other things that maybe seemed set in stone 10 or 20 years ago that have now changed, you know, for a whole new generation who don't know any different. And that, I think that could genuinely happen in Linux like it kind of has with Chrome OS, like it kind of has with Android. Although there's also an argument to say that the next generation won't be using computers as we know them, won't be using mm. laptops or desktops at all. They'll all be using phones, um, in which case I think that makes the argument for free open source software equally strong, if not stronger, that you should be able to get this high quality software on the platform of your choosing. And so... Maybe if we want free software to to thrive, then the place to do it is on Android. Ooh. Does it have to be? <laughs> <laughs> well, that or iOS, they're the only options. For, you know, because then we get into the discussion of um, the likes of the the Pine Phone and Ubuntu Touch and everything, and uh, the Librem Five being for the masses, which they're just clearly not going to be on mobile. It is a two-horse race, uh, and it's that race is is done. No one else could possibly join that race for for the foreseeable future, at least for the next five to ten years, I would say, until we have some other paradigm shift, which I obviously can't see coming. But while people are still staring at their their glass screens, and they might fold or whatever, but while they're still using phones, it's going to be Android or iOS, or realistically, a Samsung phone or an iPhone. And I think you're going to have to get your software on there, on you know both of those platforms, if you want people to use it. And if we want people to be using open source software, I'd rather them use an open source application like AntennaPod on Android than um, you know one of the other ones that's not open source. Yeah, I mean, I think that's good as long as it doesn't change the sort of relationship where like, yeah, Will, you're right. It was Krita that had themselves in the Windows App Store and they get like absolutely loads of money in through that. But they haven't like said, well, you know, fuck that KDE shit. Let's just do ourselves as a as a window app only and, you know, we might throw a few scraps towards KDE now and again. It's still a KDE app and they still put effort in. I'd hate that we end up in a situation where 
you know, the open community ends up getting the, the rough end of the stick yet again from so many things that happen all the way through. Like, I don't mind if they have Android and iPhone as a top one, as long as the rest of us who maybe decide to get a Pine phone or whatever aren't penalized for doing that. Like, if there are open formats, open standards, open protocols, then that is completely fine. But if they're going to start locking stuff down, we're going to end up back in the early 90s again, where, you know, proprietary file formats, you know, client access licenses, all these certain things where you, you know, you just can't gain access to that network. I think that could be really dangerous. Yeah, and I don't know if I actually mentioned it in the podcast last time, because I mentioned it to you guys uh, privately, that I had to build um, an Xcode project from source. Um, and I had, it's been a couple of years since I did this. And I, to, to be able to simply build an open source project in Xcode, I had to register for a developer account with Apple. I had to generate certificates. I had to put the keys to those certificates into the source code. And only then could I build it. And when I built it, I couldn't, I, and I'm unable to distribute the binaries, which is the reason why I had to build it in the first place. And I would hate to think that there are people out there thinking that's how computers work and that's the default and there's no other option because that really is just like the early 90s. And so it's imperative that the Linux desktop continues just for that reason alone, I think, to provide, um, to hedge, you know, hedge our freedom and provide an environment for us that we all enjoy as well, but also to provide people with an alternative. If you told young people about the 90s, they wouldn't believe you. <laughs> yeah, you could check. I mean, I couldn't check my bank account, you know, with a web browser. It had to mm. be Internet Explorer. It's a bit like now trying to uh, use a banking app with a rooted phone. You have to use Magisk and stuff to hide the fact that it's rooted with most banking apps. So there is a parallel there, I suppose. Yeah. If you want to have control over your computing experience, then you're going to suffer as a result of it. Because it, it, that's just how these big companies work. Yeah. Just they want to be in control of everything. But then I can kind of understand that in that they're, they're trusting the fingerprint reader or they're trusting the pin entry. And of course, once it's rooted, they can't trust that. So from, for a support system where they're all, well, I say support when they're losing money from people calling up and, you know, changing SIM numbers for authentication, it's a bit of a joke. Well, you mentioned Chrome OS in all of that. And that's surely the elephant in the room. Like, that is the future of Linux on the desktop. I said that when, when I kind of reviewed that Chromebook. Well, yes, it is. It's I, not. It's, it's horrible. It's a fucking knife in the back in sheep's clothing or some other mixed fucking metaphor. Yeah, but how, how do most people use their laptops? And most people, have you just seen them? They just close it. They open it up. They go to their websites. They close it again. They open it up. You're right, but it's just the most awful way. If if that's our hope, then we'll just quit now. I'm going to become a carpenter or something. A shite one, <laughs> but like a carpenter. Will did touch on this before. It's like people don't really care. You're trying to explain what the desktop shell is. You know, it doesn't matter. It, for most people, it's just a way of clicking on an icon. And, and it kind of fails in everything when they try and access their files or manage their files in some way, which is why Microsoft and Apple are trying so hard to abstract the file system away to their cloud offerings. Well, yeah, exactly. Whereas there is always going to be a market for the Linux desktop for people who create these apps, I think, because you you'd still, you can't use an iOS device or an Android device to make the operating system or even the apps, I don't think. I think you need a proper computer still to do that. And if you want to do any sort of serious web development or if you're some sort of sysadmin or whatever, 
there are tons of jobs that require a proper computer. And I don't think that mobile is is going to kind of take that crown. And so there'll, there'll be a niche. And within that niche, there'll be the niche that is the Linux desktop. And I think there'll be enough developers who want a Linux desktop, that the people who are in your situation, Will, who maybe have tried a Mac or Windows and just get incredibly frustrated with it and then want to go back and use Linux on the desktop. And I think that it will continue as a result of that. There, there are enough people who want to use it. And I said this on another show, I think we have won. The fact that you can buy a machine that runs Linux from several different places tells me that we've won. And there's people who sit in Linux all day, every day. Like you, Phelan. I mean, you you know don't use any proprietary software at all if you can help it. Uh, I presume you've got Zoom installed, though. There must be clients wanting to use that these days. I have never used Zoom. I don't even know what it is. The last I knew Zoom was was a recording solution for Cisco call managers, but I don't think it's the same company. I wouldn't have thought so. It's just um, it's a bit like Skype, I suppose, once was. There's a web client. Oh, there's a web client. All right, you see, oh, cool. I hope it's as good as Slack. I fucking hate Slack. <laughs> it is as good as Slack. Great, great. <laughs> I use Slack in a browser with shittier fucking notifications just because it's such a god-awful piece of crap. Um, I have used Microsoft Teams. Is that what it's called? It's fine. I, I log into it. I do the bit, do the call I need to, and then I close it again. That's fine. But that's about it. I know I've never used Teams, but I do use Slack in the web browser. With Zoom, Will, can you use Firefox for video calls? Yes. Ah, because I had to install the bloody proprietary bullshit app, um, or I thought I had to. I'm going to try my next one, uh, although I'll probably have to not be a serious meeting. I'll have to try it with uh, someone else, maybe one of you or whatever, because I'd, I'd love to not have to have that installed. I think also Will raised an interesting question about Android for like productivity. I mean, I've, I've used it when I've had to, but there are certain huge failings that I just cannot live with, like touchscreens. <laughs> well, yeah, but my memory is so poor these days that I have to multitask everything, switch between like apps all the time. And it seems to me that they, they, in Android in particular, the cache is cleared so quickly that whenever you switch back to the app that you were just trying to remember what you were doing with, everything's cleared and you have to reload it again. It's impossible to work in the way that I work, like across virtual desktops with multiple applications on one desktop. And it'd be nice to see a kind of productive version of, an, of Android, open source, hopefully, that you know could do that to become a proper laptop replacement for me anyway. What phone are you using these days? Because it sounds like you don't have enough RAM to me. Yeah, I mean, it is like having a RAM, but it's an LG G6. It's a few years old, but it's not ancient. Yeah, I would always advise someone to get as much RAM as possible with Android if you want to do multitasking like that. Because I found that with older devices, like with my Nexus 7, which has only got uh, one gigabyte, maybe, maybe two, um, that just was hopeless um, my RSS reader would just lose my place, and that was just so annoying. But when did that ever happen, like on your, your XFC 286 back in the day? <laughs> well, I never had a 286, to be fair. I started with uh, a Pentium 4. Ooh, get you. <laughs> I know. I was I was well fancy. That was when the Core 2 Duos were the norm, I think, when I had that. Um, but you're right, yeah, you might start slowing down a little bit, having to use Swap, but yeah, it's, it wouldn't just completely lose the whole of where you were in the app or whatever. Mm. I think 
in answer to your original question, I think both are important. I think that we we need to have good open source applications, but we do need to have a good fully open source desktop solution or ideally mobile. And I think that the mobile one will get there eventually, but it will never catch up uh, in terms of mainstream adoption. But I could see something like Ubuntu Touch or possibly Postmarket OS with maybe Fosh becoming a, a, a solid contender and a solid option for the likes of Phelim who are willing to not have WhatsApp and stuff. But then it's never going to get mainstream adoption, is it? No, but I think we're all agreed that that's fine, right? We, we're we not going to get mainstream adoption. And if we did get mainstream adoption, then decisions about design would be made that perhaps are less good for those of us who've been using it for a long time. So I think what we're saying is that the things are about as good as they could be at the moment. We've got a, a good selection of open source desktops that work in a variety of ways that suit all of us as individuals. Um, and we've also got excellent open source software, which runs across all different sorts of platforms, uh, which is perhaps leading people to try an open source desktop at a later date. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. And they are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK. And they ship their computers with Ubuntu or Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They have a huge range of laptops, from affordable ones, which are ideal for email and browsing, all the way up to real powerhouses with dedicated graphics and even desktop-class CPUs in them. Almost everything's configurable with the amount of storage and RAM and what CPUs they have. And if you can't find something that's exactly right for you, then do get in contact with them and they'll do you a custom order. They also have a couple of servers and a range of desktops, including a small form factor machine and a really nice all-in-one. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of the machines, then there's a little drop down at checkout. You can select late night Linux and they'll know that we sent you to them. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Let's do a quick KDE corner then. And you got a bit of feedback, Phoenim, from the last episode. I did. Um, the Falcon uh, wrote in to say that we were fawning all over KDE, yet we still hadn't mentioned the terrible state of Google integration, which is fair, which is fair. So back in August, we, I could swear we actually did this story back in August, but I can't seem to find it in the back catalog. Also, I may be just Googling poorly, um, where Gmail had changed the way the security works for um, apps and the developer contact and uh, which ties in all the things like Gmail and the calendar and stuff changed the way the security worked in order to comply, missed some steps and was notified by Google that, no, you're still in breach. You're doing things that you're not supposed to based on the API. Missed that email and unfortunately was then sort of blacklisted. Um, and yeah, so it's not been actually entirely the KDE team's fault that it's kind of gone into the black hole of being approved again by Google. That's kind of screwed it all over. Now, I didn't know this. I don't use Google shock horror. I do have a Gmail account, but there's a way to switch it to plain authentication. So you don't have to actually deal with any of the, the newer APIs. But obviously in June, I think of this year, that's going to go away and next year it's going to be completely gone away so yeah they obviously need to fix this but they are kind of at the mercy of google themselves which is not a great place to be much like your xcode development 
sort of thing that you were talking about, Graham, where if you rely on these proprietary external systems and then they disallow you, then you're stuffed. Yeah, I think that it's totally unfair to blame the KDE developers for this because it's just not their fault. They're trying their hardest. Yeah, I mean, you know, hands up, they did screw up the first time. But I mean, Jesus, if you've got one chance to not fuck up and then you're stung by it, I mean, that's that's pretty harsh. Yeah. All right, what else is in KDE Corner this time? Well, uh, funnily enough, the same developer <laughs> has been busy working away. A uh, whole load of new features coming into things like Kmail with uh, DKIM uh, signing better. Um load of bugs that have been fixed as well. Uh, K organizers getting some extra uh, calendar editors and things like that. And, you know, a whole lot of work is going in there just to let people know that contact Kmail calendaring is not the dead project that a lot of people seem to think it is. Still trucking along quite nicely and has been my uh, email system for a very, very long time. Um, so, yeah, it's good to see the work is, you know, still chugging along. And uh, next up is the fact that the German government or part of the German government involved in encryption and security and stuff has actually certified uh, GPG for KDE and also GPG for WIN uh, for the transmission and processing of national classified information, which is pretty cool. Um, so they obviously did some audit on the code, uh, checked out how it all works and um, things like K- uh, K-Mail and Cleopatra, the certificate manager, they've been signed off as as passing for sending government docs. So you can Snowden all your data out of the German government and to the uh, Guardian or something like that, if that's what you're up to. Um, they've, they've checked off that it's totally fine and okay. And uh, KO Tenery then, go on, your hobby horse. <sighs> yeah, well, I mean, I had to, didn't I? So uh, the Plasma Browser plugin developer has been busily working away on trying to integrate that into things like um, making a new meta framework for websites. Um, things like there's a geotag, uh, so things can pop up in a marble or some other mapping application that you might have. Um, there already has things where you can click on the hyperlinks in a web page, like I do in Firefox, and I can send that out to my mobile phone, which is quite handy. If you're especially doing research for the show or something like that, it's quite handy if I'm wandering off somewhere. No, I'm not going to the toilet. Yes, I'm going to the toilet. And I can just send the story off there and I can read away on the jacks. It's all happy days. Um, but they're also integrating um, things for webmail. So not everybody using Kmail and the like, they are trying to work with, uh, is it Zool? Is that how they pronounce it? The UI stuff in Firefox to try and integrate the same type of uh, buttons that you would get in Kmail. Um and things like Thunderbird, so you can get the same features uh, that you get in Kmail, where if a email from one of your airlines or uh, rail companies or like comes in, you get things like Add to KD Itinerary, where it can send that off to your phone um, or stick it into your calendar for you automatically, which is really handy for, for trips that are coming up where you get like 50 gajillion different fucking emails from various bits and pieces of your travel. Well, with all that KDE excitement, I think we better wrap it up. You love it. We'll be back in a couple of weeks then when hopefully Graham will have made it back from the continent. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. 